Well, aloha from Maui, and happy November. Today's the 1st of November, 2009. And if you're with us live today, 1 o'clock in the Pacific, 4 o'clock in the Eastern Time Zone of the U.S., then obviously you remembered to fall your clocks back one hour, and uh, most of the United States is, well, I guess all of the United States now is on standard time. In Arizona and those of us here in Hawaii, we remain on standard time all year round, so we're all synced up. And uh, this program is now heard internationally at 21 hours GMT, and in the summertime, uh, 20 hours GMT, so that for the majority of the United States, uh, the time never changes. That way it will remain one in the west and four in the east, Uh, 2 o'clock mountain, 3 o'clock central. Nice to be with you today. We're going to review the six key principles of the ageless wisdom philosophy. Now, this is uh, this is flexible. This is not carved in granite. To borrow a figure of speech, I have six because um, that's just what it came down to. If it had to be five or seven or eight, I probably could have come up with a few more or edited uh, what I have. Uh, I always like the number seven. I'm sure I could have found one more and called it the seven uh, key principles of the ageless wisdom. Look, one of the things that we love about philosophy is that it tends to be less dogmatic and less rigid than religion or some other belief system that you either conform to or not. Uh, The field of philosophy generally tends to honor your, well, first right, and secondly, responsibility to think for yourself, to make up your own mind. So consequently, the field of philosophy appeals mostly to better educated people who have the resources to think for themselves, to read between the lines, and to decide how they feel about this, that, or the other thing, from everyday problem solving to the greatest uh, existential questions of all time, the unanswerable questions. And that's part of what I certainly love about the field. To me, philosophy is a search for truth. For whatever reason, I, even as a boy, felt lied to. I don't mean that my parents lied to me and I knew it. There were parts of my parents' life I knew they were concealing from me, but I didn't feel they lied to me. I never really thought, even as a very young child, that my teachers and others were consciously deceiving me or lying to me. But I'm of a generation that watched television begin. I was born... uh, in the late 40s, 1947, uh, by 1950, I'm three or four years old. Here come the first televisions into our homes. And very quickly, uh, my whole generation, I think, uh, got up to speed in terms of realizing that there's more going on than we're being told. There are more options, there are more choices. 
There are more divergent ways to think. There's different streams of reason that we're not being uh, exposed to through our mass media. Uh, television, this brand new media in the early 50s, uh, radio, and uh, print, of course, uh, newspapers and, and magazines, weren't really telling us the whole story. And so those of us who felt that way, I think we tend to hang out with other boys and girls and later women and men uh, who had similar feelings. Uh, there's more going on than what we're being told. And for that reason, I fell into journalism in college. And I majored in television and radio as a business management field, but my minor was broadcast journalism, and that's what I pursued, of course, um, finding out that I wasn't really cut out to be management material. Um, I was always the guy behind the microphone, whether uh, a news person, a commentator, um, an editorial writer, uh, a talk show host, a straight news guy, a field reporter, an anchor, a, a weatherman, a traffic reporter even. I wore uh, many hats and always enjoyed radio up until the late 80s when commercial radio got too bad and, and I just couldn't suffer it any longer. There was really no place for me to go. And by the late to mid, or the, uh, I would say by the mid-90s, uh, I'd pretty much given up on commercial radio, and that's when I uh, started working at KPFK, at listener-supported non-commercial radio. But they allowed me to pursue the truth. They, they allowed me, KPFK more than any commercial station I ever worked at, to tell my own particular brand of truth, the highest quality of truth that I could tell knowing that people I'm working with, especially at KPFK, can do the same thing, and we still disagree, but we're able to respect each other because we both know that we're telling the highest quality of truth to power that we can, and there's integrity in that. Whether we disagree here or disagree there, it wasn't the way the right wing fears the left, right? the way the people that are holding us back, um, trying to drag us into the 19th century, the 18th century, the, the Middle Ages, uh, the way they oppose the progressive unfoldment, development, uh, evolution of humanity. You know, The right wing is not only terrified by evolution in the Darwinian sense, but just the way liberal progressive thinking moves forward solving problems like uh, climate change, global warming, uh, extreme poverty, uh, nuclear proliferation, eventually abolishing hunger, abolishing war, and we will not rest as compassionate, well-educated people who have been trained all of our lives to honor the inner longing to make up our own minds, to think for ourselves. Well, this tradition actually has existed in philosophy from the beginning of time. But the philosophers that we're usually presented with in high school and college philosophy courses are sort of the mainstream guys. 
you know, you'll learn about Aristotle and, and uh, Plato and a little about Socrates. You might hear something about Pythagoras. Maybe you get a sense that uh, Confucius had an impact in the folk wisdom of China. And there was this other Chinese guy, Lao Tzu, that had something to say about that. Um, most of Eastern philosophy is so interlaced with religion that Western people have little understanding of Eastern philosophy and religion, although we can see progress in that area as well. Uh, just as science is making inroads into the third world and uh, Eastern Hemisphere, uh, an appreciation of the esoteric, of the uh, spiritual, of the psychological um, is finding its balance in the West. I, I sometimes think of that old Jefferson Airplane song uh, um, about a tear to a Western man is water and salt. A tear to an Eastern man is a precipitation of pain and joy. And in many ways, the east and west of it is similar to that, but I think we're seeing the big wheel come around on that also. So my point in the beginning here is simply to say that throughout time, in all cultures, in all societies, and in all ages, there has been an element, a golden thread in philosophy known as the timeless or ancient teachings. In the Renaissance era, this was often referred to as Prisca Theologia, and it simply means the ancient teachings. In other words, what did people believe before religion? Before Muhammad, before Jesus the Christ before Moses, who were the prophets in the Middle East and, 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 and the Near East, Europe, and the New World? Well, you can say, oh, well, people were pagans. They just worshipped nature. Uh, well, if you study the Greek and Roman pantheons of the gods, it's rather sophisticated allegory. And if you were taught that people in those days believed in the gods in much the way people today believe in the existence of a god, uh, I, I, I think you'd be mistaken. I, I really think even at the time, most Greeks and Romans knew that this was allegory or parable or, or metaphor, although I'm sure there were some people that took it literally. But today, I think most people who identify themselves as religious take the Bible literally, particularly the born-agains, uh, the evangelicals, uh, and Mormons, and, and um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, 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 and others. Um, mostly Protestants, since Catholics don't concern themselves very much with uh, either the New or the Old Testament, uh, when push comes to shove, you back a Catholic into the corner, 
He might admit haven't looked at a Bible once, but um, that was one of the primary reasons, of course, for the Reformation in the Renaissance area, uh, the the rebellion, if you will, by the Protestants, or we call them Protestants today. Not sure why. Protestant seems to be the the right word uh, to use for all of that. And still, there is this Prisca Theologia, this ancient wisdom. Now, it's also been called the perennial philosophy, like flowers that bloom again year after year, a perennial philosophy. In fact, a great writer, uh, Aldous Huxley, wrote a marvelous book simply entitled The Perennial Philosophy. I highly recommend that to you. It's one of the most important books in the wisdom tradition for students of the ageless wisdom, uh, what sometimes is called the New Age uh, Theosophy or the New Thought Movement. Um, it's seminal. It's, it's mandatory reading Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy. Take it in little bits and pieces and... Um, I think you'll love it. This is a guy, of course, who wrote Brave New World. Um, so many wonderful screenplays and uh, Broadway plays and such, one-act, three-act plays, uh, short stories, uh, novels, and um, some autobiographical stuff, too. His Doors of Perception is a critically acclaimed work in the area of the expansion of consciousness through psychedelics. Uh, Huxley, as a middle-aged man, talks about a mushroom trip, a psilocybin trip that he goes on, and you have the benefit of his literacy and his critical thinking skills and his mastery of the vocabulary as he describes coming onto these mushrooms and how it bridges him from a physical world into a metaphysical or spiritual world. Great book, Perennial Philosophy. So what do we call it? Prisca Theologia, which is almost never used anymore, or the Perennial Philosophy, also referred to as the Ageless Wisdom or Esoteric Philosophy. There is within that references also to mysticism and the occult. Now, I must say, the, the um, most conservative, most fundamental elements of Christianity have done a pretty good job of conflating uh, magic, occultism, with Satanism, which is so bizarre and so strange that uh, you expose yourself to magic and mysticism and metaphysics, and you'll see that it's all white magic, it's all spiritually based, that um, black magic is really based around uh, honoring the separated self and the ego's longing for material things. So if you're about yourself without regard to others, and you're primarily interested in the acquisition of material things, money and stuff, well, that's what Satanism is about, right? Having no regard, no care for others. I mean, you can be a dedicated Satanist and 
not be interested in killing people or murdering people. It's just you don't care about other people. That's evil. You might say, oh, no, that's a very high bar, Michael. Uh, it's not evil unless somebody wants to hurt you or steal your stuff. No, that's in philosophy not really true. In generally, in accepted philosophy, evil begins with caring only about yourself and having no regard, or little regard, for the impact of your behavior or your action on other people. So that's all it takes uh, to begin to go down that road. And it also tends to be a path of materialism, of, of money and stuff. The idea that pagans, nature worshipers, um, those who saw the divine in all created things and made references as did the ancient Egyptians, to the one life, or the Egyptians actually referred to God as the one thing, as if every seemingly separated thing was part of one great thing or one life. This is Prisca Theologia. This is the heart and soul of esoteric philosophy, mysticism, magic. The occult just means hidden. You know why it's hidden. <laughs> right, uh, the Inquisition, uh, and then another Inquisition, hundreds of years of Inquisitions and Crusades and witch burnings and book burnings, and yeah, uh, you know, that's why it's hidden. And uh, also the fear that if the ancient wisdom traditions were made into a dogmatic religion, fixed and crystallized and inflexible, um, the life of it would be lost. The thing about the wisdom traditions that's so beautiful and appealing to so many of us is that you can feel its pulse. It is in all things. It says life is everywhere and, and shows you many, many ways to awaken yourself to that higher reality, that you are not that separated being. In fact, you're not separated from anything. And those feelings of loneliness and alienation and isolation, much less those feelings that you are pitted against others, and that there's somebody in this world called them who just is not you. You find that, again, that's, that's evil. That's the dark side. Those are the lies. It's not true. There is but one mind at work in all of reality, one thing, one life. And that's the beginning of the ageless wisdom traditions. Again, whether they're called, as my website is called, the ageless wisdom, or as Huxley uses the phrase, the perennial philosophy, same thing. Prisca Theologia, the ancient teachings from before all prophets, same thing. Okay, Esoteric philosophy, mysticism, metaphysics, uh, and again, you may know it as, I guess, basically theosophy, the New Age, and the New Thought Movement. That's primarily how it's thought of today. That's how it's manifesting itself in uh, 2009. Okay, so um, with that, let me go to a couple of uh, notes that I have. I have, a, I have six bullet points here. Again, I 
mentioned a few minutes ago, this is not carved in granite. This is just sort of a, a general consensus or overview that I've I pulled down. I can't give attribution because this is from so many sources. And again, a, a, a consensus, if you will, of the strands of philosophy that twisted together form the, the golden thread that runs through all philosophy called the ancient wisdom, the ageless wisdom, mysticism, or metaphysics. Okay? The first uh, principle, as I've already begun to discuss, is, well, we'll call it essential divinity. If you're a note taker, number one, essential divinity. This, um, this is the principle that recognizes that the divine presence, um, God, except the word God, to most people in the Western world, conjures up an image of a separated individual a being, a human-shaped being with arms and legs. And, and so to talk about God being everywhere or God being in everything is challenging for those who have a view of God as separated and living very far away. I remember being raised as a, as a little boy. I was raised a Catholic, and they said both things. They said, Essentially, God is this man, and heaven is this place. It's very far away, but God is everywhere. Well, that's what they said about Santa Claus, and that turned out not to be true. So I didn't know what to believe. And every hair on your head is counted, and, and even a sparrow falls from the sky, and God knows it. Well, I'm thinking maybe God's just got very good vision, but lives still very far away. I just, as a kid, I didn't know what to do with this idea because our society, generally, the European and Western society, does not teach essential divinity. That it's not that God is in everything so much as the Godhead is in everything. Religious people backflip when they hear this. What? There's a God higher than the Father? Well, not really in terms of a hierarchy, but the Father, the Son, and the Mother, or the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three aspects of the Godhead. So the Godhead is a reference to that which encompasses the Trinity but goes beyond the Trinity to that about which nothing may be said. Many philosophers... Uh, have commented throughout the years on the irony that so much anger and fear is generated by people arguing over the names of God when in fact God by its very nature could have no name. For to have a name is to have a beginning and an end. To have a name is to be a thing that some other thing is not. And nothing could stand outside of God. So God ultimately ultimately has to be a Godhead or the one about whom not may be said. And that essence, that, if you will, Holy Spirit, then imbues all things. 
All right, that's the mother aspect and the father aspect. The father aspect would be the the power of divinity. Uh, the mother aspect would be the manifestation or reflection called the Holy Spirit in form. Okay, they're like poles of a bar magnet. Father aspect being the North Pole, the mother aspect, or what the religion has chosen to call the Holy Spirit, would be the South Pole of the bar magnet. And the Christ, the Son, the offspring, would be the magnetic field that unifies what appear to be opposites into one whole bar magnet. All of this is part of the concept of essential divinity that recognizes the Godhead in every person, regardless of race, gender, culture, or religion. And many of us would argue in every animal, in every plant, and in every material thing for how could something exist outside of that which created it, right? You can say, well, I can create a painting that lives outside of me, that is not of me. Well, it might live outside of you in terms of appearance. You might be separated from that painting in a physical sense, but you created it, so you're clearly in it. We can't, in a more complete sense, separate you from your creation. To separate the creator from the creation is one of the most fundamental mistakes that religion makes, according to someone who understands the ageless wisdom, right? So inner divinity is a recognition of the fundamental universal energy or the life, the life force, right? Disturbance in the force, Luke. The life force, the chi, the ki, the kundalini, the prana, the alan vital that is imbued in all things. Some would say all living things. Some would say no, the material universe itself, the rocks and the dirt and the so-called inorganic, um, the mineral plane, that which does not reproduce, is not alive and therefore could not be part of the one life. But to the mystic, nothing is separated, and so nothing stands outside the one life. This is the concept of God or Godhead in all things. This is known as God imminent. That's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, as opposed to imminent spelled I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. That means about to happen. God imminent would be like a religious person waiting for the second coming. (laughs) Hurry up, Jesus, right? And saying, well, that coming is imminent. It's about to happen. To say that the divine is immanent, imminent with an A, means in all things, the one life is present as an energy in every seemingly separated thing. All right. And this inner revelation uh, then illumines your understanding of the one life uh, 
and of course the the spiritual ecosystem or the inner reliance and inner dependence that all parts have on the greater whole. Again, this model of spirituality is reflected in, as you might expect, nature and the environmental uh, ecosystem, the the tree of life, the arbor vitae, the web of life, the chain of life, the food chain, if you want to call it by one of the more base and elemental names, the food chain, so to speak. But the beauty and the symbiosis, the balance uh, between wholeness and diversity and uh, just the inner reliance and interdependence, the, the symbiosis of the, of the plant kingdom needing the oxygen and, and exhaling, so to speak, um, the, um, I have it backwards, the plant kingdom absorbs the CO2 and releases oxygen the animal and human kingdom absorb the oxygen and we release as a waste product the CO2. Then, of course, we burn fossil fuels and add to the CO2. That's our greenhouse effect or global warming. It's an incredible, incredibly beautiful system that younger people understand and the older generation just never learned in school and still doesn't understand and still debating Darwinism and whether human beings were saddling up dinosaurs and riding around on the backs of dinosaurs 5,000 years ago. Uh, Over the temple of Delphi in ancient Greece, as you may know, was written, Know Thyself, the full inscription according to Plato, and this was ancient history in Plato's time. Truly, uh, Delphi in ancient Greece was more like 4,000 years ago. Plato was about 2,500 years ago, a little less. The full inscription, according to Plato, was not only know thyself, but man, know thyself, and thou shalt know the universe and the gods. This is somewhat similar to the ancient Egyptian uh, platitude, as above, so below. And as it is below, so it is above. The so-called law of correspondence, the second law or rubric of the ancient Egyptian emerald tablet, as above, so below. Plato said the same thing. To know God, you must know yourself. Think about it. What are they saying? That God created you and now is very far away? Or you are an extension of that divinity, and that divinity is in you now. You're not God in that you are all that God is, but that's your breeding stock. (laughs) You are of that, just as a raindrop is the ocean. This is found in a lot of mysticism, the allegory of the drop of water in the ocean. For even if we take the drop out of the ocean, the ocean remains in the drop, you see. And eventually that drop of water will go back to the ocean. We have a similar uh, concept in the Bhagavad Gita. In Hinduism, Krishna said, having pervaded the universe with a fragment of myself, I remain. 
like a painter saying, well, I painted this painting. It's an expression of me. I'm in the painting, but I am not diminished by having created this painting. And so having pervaded the universe with a fragment of myself, I remain. So this suggests that we need more than one definition, that not only is the Godhead, the most divine, the creator, in everything, according to the ageless wisdom, God immanent, but brace yourself, what if the opposite is also true, that everything is in the same sense within the one life, and that God or the Godhead is that and more. Everything you can imagine, the whole universe, and more, maybe multiple universes, multiverses. Who knows? Maybe even the Most High doesn't know yet because it keeps growing. Everywhere we look, life seems to be about growth and expansion and healing and learning and getting better and better and better. Right? That's a pretty consistent theme. So why not? So we need at least two basic definitions for the divine. Either one, I think, answers more questions than the image of God as a being separated in the form of a man living very far away. That instead, what is called God is a Godhead, a creative, loving energy or a spirit that is in everything that it creates at the same time that everything that is created and been created is within the one. Said simply, the one in every thing and everything in the one. The first part of that is God imminent, the one in everything. The second part is God transcendent, everything in the one and more. Okay. That's the beginning of esoteric philosophy, of, of Eastern philosophy, of Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry and the secret societies of Christianity, the Book of Splendors, the Zohar, the Kabbalah for the ancient Jews, uh, the Emerald Tablet and the writings of the ancient Egyptians. Um, this is in shamanism in the indigenous cultures of people all around the world, from the, those in the deepest rainforests of Central America or South America, uh, to the Eskimos uh, in Siberia and in North America, the, uh, the, the Plains Indians, so-called, these indigenous people, all had this similar world philosophy. right? And the exception is the religion, as the prophets emerge. Moses, about 1300 B.C., Christ, this is where our calendar flips from uh, B.C. to uh, A.D., uh, Mohammed, roughly um, 500 A.D., and if you look at uh, the East, it's even harder to say because we have these demigods um, and... Um, manifestations of divinity that are so 
rich and complex in their tradition and history that they're thought of as being in existence and and yet existing primarily in spirit, above and free of form, at the same time. And we don't have anything like that in Western um, religion. The three monotheistic religions of the West, uh, Islam, the Muslims, uh, Judaism, Hebrew religion, and Christians, their sense of religion is all about salvation and the other religions of the world are very, very different. They're, <laughs> they're not even religions by that standard. And uh, for all the fighting that Christians and Jews and Muslims do, remember, they all trace themselves to the same father, Abraham. And um, it's just, my name for God is better than yours, and my God is better than yours, and secretly we'll admit that we're all talking about the same God, but I kill you. Uh, because you are a uh, heathen, you are a barbarian, and so on. Okay, so that's the first aspect of uh, the first principle that we find and, and about as foundational and fundamental as we can get is that what uh, unifies all these different philosophies in the so-called ageless wisdom or, again, theosophy. I don't mean only Blavatsky's theosophy founded in the late 19th century. I'm talking about small t theosophy, such as the Rhineland mystics that go back to the 13th and, and 14th century, Catholic mystics before the Protestant Reformation. It's a small t theosophy as well. And uh, this is also part of a new thought movement that came out of, um, well, Scotland, uh, England uh, and the United States in the early 19th century um, uh, with Phineas Park Quimby and Thomas Trowbridge and uh, some of the early uh, Western metaphysicians, 1820s, 1830s. Out of that came the Unity Church, Charles Fillmore, um, the Religious Science Church, uh, the book Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes, and out of that sprang the whole metaphysical uh, movement of the 20th century, uh, today generally called New Age. And um, not much of a discipline, pretty loose, pretty loose. As people cast about and uh, try to find these principles we're talking about today. So let's go to the second principle here. And that's uh, the concept we'll call spiritual approach. And this is the law that many would say governs, um, well, it really governs everything. Your next rightful evolutionary step uh, is motivated by a sense of divine discontent. You want something beyond your current experience. You long for more. You're like um, a thirsty person or a, or a hungry person. We're not talking about a desire for material things. We're talking about an aspiration to know your source. Uh, it's less horizontal. Desire is like, you know, horizontal. I want more money. I want more stuff. That'll make me happy. Capital D desire, or more correctly, to aspire. Aspire, spear, spirit, spirit, 
to aspire is to want to go vertically rather than horizontally, to climb Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven, uh, to get closer and closer and closer to the source of all love and all that is. A spiritual approach, you could say, is based on your relationship to the one in whom we live and move and have our being. This is a sentence you find a lot in mysticism, in Freemasonry, in Rosicrucianism, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Again, this is the second definition of God as transcendent, everything in the one life. And it brings spiritual values into daily life and work as you celebrate that everything is sacred. You know, you are sacred, and the guy you can't stand in the office cubicle just down the row, he's sacred too, (laughs) you know. Uh, and we need to honor that and, and respect that. We can also know at the same time that this sweet spirit, this guy you don't like in the adjacent cubicle, that his ego is in charge and he's coming out of fear, but deep inside, beyond that fear-based ego and his fighting with all things that seem to be other than who or what he is, you can know secretly and silently there's a soul in there uh, trying to get out that, that, that wants to transcend its sphere and find its place in the world bit by bit realizing its connection to all things. It can also be said that a true spiritual approach maintains a balance in this way of vertical and horizontal alignments on the On the uh, vertical axis, you align to your soul, to God imminent, that part that's within you, as well as God transcendent and beyond you, and the higher evolutionary plan. You you feel the flow of energy connecting you to these higher states. You can stand open and receptive to the impress of the divinity above you, yet to be known, but also align to and be causative to the kingdoms of nature below you, over which you have a caretaker status. Uh, other human beings, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, and of course the mineral kingdom, as we're all part of this one life. And at the same time, on the horizontal axis, you reach out connecting with other individuals and keeping in balance the role of material things and money into your life. Material things, money and stuff, is not in and of itself bad or corrupting. It's no more so than a particular thought could be corrupting and its influence on you. It's what you do with the thought. If you agree with a corrupting thought, it'll corrupt you. <laughs> like It's okay to steal this stuff, nobody will know. But if you are not the thought, as you develop your awareness of self, you realize, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually this awareness that I could agree or disagree with the thought or agree with some part and reject some other part of the thought. And I'm the individual that makes the choice. And, and my life is the sum of the choices that I make. That's very different than uh, my life is the, the, the total of what's done to me. And I'm just a, a helpless victim and I need more money and stuff uh, to protect me from the attack of the world around me. Okay. Uh, 
to think of the pre-Christian cross as having both a vertical and a horizontal element. The horizontal, the horizon, is our relationship to stuff and other people, uh, but mostly money and stuff, the material world. The vertical would be like the bar magnet that we discussed earlier with the South Pole in physical dents and the North Pole fixed, unmoving, unmovable, infinite and eternal, the Godhead outside of form, above and free of form. In fact, you can even put that bar magnet into motion like a pendulum and see in the bottom end, the mother end of the bar magnet in the material world, mater is matter, is mother, with its yin and yang and its back and forth and the duality and the relative nature of the swing of the pendulum between all that is dual in the world. And yet at the superior end, the top end, the spirit end of the bar magnet, the North Pole, you have this fixed, infinite, eternal, unmovable, unmoving point outside of time and space uh, from which all this manifests. Um, the pendulum is a, especially if you see it as a bar magnet and the pendulum, is an incredibly rich and profound model, paradigm, uh, metaphor for some of these basic metaphysical concepts. Um, Foucault or Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco is a good example of that. Never knew whether to pronounce it Foucault's Pendulum or Foucault's Pendulum. But um, it's Umberto Eco, and it's a pretty good read. I really like even if you just read the first chapter. Third principle I want to run by you today about uh, the ageless wisdom, this uh, strand and the larger golden thread that is all of the perennial philosophy is goodwill. Goodwill is God's will. Goodwill is the principle that expresses a generally benevolent disposition toward other people and toward all of life. It's a responsibility to pull upon your will to do good. All right, that's what goodwill is. It's using your willpower to pull upon this divine part of you, the part of you that feels some camaraderie, some communion, some communication, community, connection with your fellow man, and then the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and the, and the universe around you. Even on a bad day, even when you don't feel like it, you know, most people are pretty good at that. They maybe have a, a headache or they didn't get enough sleep and they drank too much the night before, they're a little out of sorts, and they go to work and somebody says, hey, Bill, how are you doing? They'll say, I'm okay, I feel all right. He's lying, he's miserable, but he knows it's just a formal greeting uh, or an informal greeting, better said. That is really a little dance. Nobody really wants to know how you are anyway. Not entirely true, but that's sort of a cynical um, uh, point of view. And, and, and my larger point is that most of us are pretty good at pulling on goodwill, 
even if we're having a bad day. Many of us see it, however, as a responsibility to nourish a spirit of understanding, to foster cooperation, to emphasize us instead of them, and harmony over discord. Um, Qualities of love like compassion and generosity and forgiveness are expressions of a will to good, uh, goodwill, identifying yourself with the good part of another person rather than their weaker point, um, with a purpose greater than yourself in all of this uh, develops goodwill. Next point I want to make is fourth, right human relations. This follows on as a law, really, I'll say it that way, a law, right human relations, that recognizes other unique human beings. Well, let me say it this way. recognizes that other people, other human beings, are unique. Everybody is different, just like everybody else. You're you're all unique, just like everybody else. Recognize the uniqueness of human beings. However, remember that we share a human identity and that everybody needs to be treated with respect and dignity. Whether you like them or hate them or fear them or have vengeance uh, uh, directed toward them, whatever, this really is the golden rule. Right human relations, honored in every religion, though you know not always practiced, uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, Good relationships with others begin with a good relationship with yourself. And a lot of folks only look at the first two-thirds of that sentence, doing the others as you would, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. What about the tail end? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, if you think you deserve to be treated badly and that your experience that others are treating you badly and that's just fine with you, then obviously you're going to be initiating that same behavior, only calling it a response or a reaction. And yet you're actually initiating and fomenting and maintaining the discord. You know, I think you can prove this to yourself in traffic any day of the week that you want. It doesn't take much for most of us to feel cut off on the freeway to feel our space has been invaded, like another person is just a, a totally inconsiderate jerk in the way they're driving. But, of course, you never see yourself in that same way. Instead of changing everybody else on the highway, which you obviously cannot do, or wishing you could wave a magic wand and make everybody as responsible and safe a driver as you, My challenge to you is to act like they already have been transformed. As soon as you think of it, as soon as it occurs to you, play this game. Pretend everybody on the freeway is part of a grand conspiracy to cooperate, to respect everybody else on the freeway, and to be courteous, and uh, generous and kind on the freeway. 
Okay, fake it. Make it up. Pretend. As I take this breath right now, uh, everybody suddenly switched to kind, considerate, respectful, right? And, of course, you have to behave that way now because everybody else is. Watch the magic happen. And then you will be forced to realize that those negative people in traffic are you. And your perception, or perhaps even attracted, magnetized by your generally funky attitude, and when you change your attitude about the way you treat other people, magically, even instantly on the freeway, the way they treat you will change. I give you a double your money back guarantee on that because money's got nothing to do with it. Try, try it out. I think you'll be absolutely amazed. I've had people come back to me 20 years later and say, for the last two decades I've been doing that. It's absolutely amazing. It's simply the golden rule, point four, right human relations. Two more, and then we'll go to the questions. Again, uh, if you want to use the text, the uh, web page is in front of you with a player on it and down at the bottom some fields where you can put in a question or a comma with the keyboard and be sure and add your name and your city and hit submit. If you don't hit submit, I won't see it. Those of you on the phone or willing to call, use any one of the numbers on the website listed on the player. Uh, right above the player, there's a primary, a backup, and a third link that says other numbers. You go in there, you'll find a number with an area code that's um, close to where you live. If you're still paying for long distance per minute and you're worried about the toll call but you want to participate by phone, go into that link, okay, other numbers, and I bet you'll find an area code just down the street from you. And then you can pick up the phone and call and enter the conference ID when you're prompted. And if you're on the telephone and have a question, star 2, on your telephone touchpad will raise your hand. And as I said earlier today, I think we're going to have a, uh, a ringer of the week for the next few weeks to encourage some of you to use the telephone. All right. Point number five is unanimity. This is the principle of really identifying with other people. It's a subjective union of purpose with others that's recognized in your heart more than your mind. It's a, it's a, it can be uh, seen as a quality of love. It can be seen as going beyond love, certainly beyond romantic love, and even beyond friendship or agape. It is a coherence uh, that can be verified by the illumination of the higher mind. It's, um, again, like a magnetic attraction that you begin to feel at first with like-minded individuals, but eventually with all people. You begin to fall in love with everybody. And you have compassion for the people you used to fear. And then you begin to love everything around you. You, you not only love those particular flowers you've always loved, you love all these other flowers that you never cared about before. And 
you not only like uh, this particular breed of dogs, you love all dogs, and you love the cats too, and and eventually you even begin to see, uh, uh, we were talking about this the other day, um, the difference between a rat and a squirrel. And if only rats had fuzzy tails, they'd be adorable. Or if a squirrel ever lost uh, the, the hair on its tail, it would look just like a rat. And it would be terrifying. Squirrels and rats, all for the hair on the tail. They're, <laughs> they're basically the same animal, you know. Or a rat and a rabbit. You know, it's like, oh, the sweet rabbit. Oh, the disgusting rat. You know, but unanimity is you begin to see the divine in all things. And, uh, again, it doesn't, it doesn't predict any particular behavior. It doesn't mean that... Uh, we're going to keep rats instead of cats around the house, uh, but it's a connection. Again, uh, uni means one, as in universe, one verse. Um, and anima actually means soul. So unanimity is a reference to the oneness of the nature of the soul. That while a soul is considered to be individuated, it's also the point between the manifested physical individual and God as the one thing. So there needs to be a middle element, which is both one thing and individuated. A middle element that is both the Son of God and the Son of Man, a Christos, a Buddha nature, a soul, um, this, this middle element that shares the ground of the divine, but also the ground of the physical universe. And that middle element is, again, the soul, the plane of the soul, so-called heaven, or this concept we're talking about of unanimity, the one soul, having the same form or an imposed outer unity. Unanimity is freely chosen and never imposed, as it is experienced on an inner soul level. Uh, groups and organizations with this approach today are very effective in achieving their mission. If you're familiar with the concept in Christianity, uh, Christ said, when two or more gather in my name, or in prosperity, Napoleon Hill's mastermind group, or I've participated in so-called success teams, um, you get a group of people together, Two or more as a group. And your ability to manifest, to do magic, uh, for the greater good of all, remember, if you do it only for the separated self or only for the group, and you don't care about the impact on the one life, then it's going to be black magic. It's going to be dark. And the results are going to be limited to the astral plane or below. You're, you're going to have some pretty nasty karma you're going to have to deal with. So make sure all of your work as an individual and as a group conforms to this largest concept of unanimity. You have to care about the greater good of all concerned. And in the biggest sense, everything is in, uh, concerned. Everything is part of the one concern or the one life. So this sixth principle, group endeavor, is the law of group consciousness and um, let me describe it this way. I made a note here. I 
collaborative approach that moves beyond the emphasis on individual spiritual development, the idea of group spiritual development. This approach emphasizes the spiritual development of individuals working within groups. It's not an either-or. Uh, group work is primarily energy work, uh, healing, uh, visualizing world peace, um, visualizing uh, everyone getting adequate nutrition, an end to extreme poverty, an end to capital punishment, an end to war, a world without those horrible things. Uh, learning to absorb as a group, to, to share, to circulate, and distribute energy as a group from higher levels. Um, this is very exciting work. And one of the best things that religion has going for it is this idea of fellowship, of working together as a group. And even if the group competes with and sees itself as exclusive and superior to those that are outside of its group, there is something to be said for the group work. If only they would see the ultimate group <laughs> as absolutely inclusive. Don't you see what I mean? We could have a group that works for the greater good of all, of all concerned, of everyone and everything. And uh, that's the kind of group uh, that we're talking about. So there you go. Uh, six basic principles, nothing carved in granite. There may be uh, seven. We could have come up with eight or ten or twelve, I suppose. Uh, but just a nice, simple overview of this huge field of philosophy called esoteric philosophy or mysticism the ageless wisdom, the ancient wisdom, um, or Prisca Theologia, or the perennial philosophy. Those are a lot of different names for the same thing. And they are concepts, again, from all cultures and all times that really have stood the test of time. Think of that phrase, the test of time. Why are these ancient ideas still around? Because the science and the empirical search for truth in the manifest world is verifying that consciousness is the unified field. Consciousness. It's, uh, there's more than energy and matter going on here. You know, Einstein put the equal sign, said spirit and matter, or energy and mass, the way the scientist refers to it, is all we've got. They're convertible. They're two forms of the same thing. There's nothing else going on. Well, there is one other thing going on. That energy and that matter became conscious. It woke up. It is imbued with sentience. We are aware of ourselves on some level. Animals are aware of themselves, though on a somewhat lesser level. They can't reflect or think about their thinking or detach mindfully. But they are very zen. They are very in the moment. No reason to believe that plants are not sentient, at least on their own level. We know that a single-celled amoeba or paramecium is sentient. So why wouldn't every cell in your body be aware of itself? On a cellular level, you know, a muscle cell may not know that it's a bicep or a tricep or part of a larger body, but 
it's aware of itself as a muscle cell, right? So every blood cell in your body is aware of itself. Maybe every molecule, every subatomic particle. This you have to begin to consider as you move through these collective overarching philosophies that recognize the divine as both imminent and transcendent. All right? So there's, there's your six principles that I wanted to review today. Let's go to the questions. First, we'll check the um, written question page, and then we'll go to the callers. And again, use the any one of those numbers on that page. Just make sure you get the conference ID in there, connected to the right conference, and that's us. And then star two if you want to raise your hand on the phone. Lorelai Hatch says, Aloha, Michael, great topic. She says, uh, makes you do some internalizing. So many thoughts, so many feelings, and how little time we spend understanding what they really mean. That's why I love doing this program, you know, as much for me as for you. It's uh, a great way to put my attention on the most fascinating concepts there are, the largest overarching questions of existence. And who am I? And what is life? And what is consciousness? And the great questions. And they impact your life. They change the way you live your life when you set aside a little time every day, just a few minutes a day, as Lorelei says, to reflect on these matters. Carol Postel of Habra says, Hi again, Michael. Hello, Doreen. David Cantu in North Dakota says, uh, Hey, Michael, just made it. Hello, David. Nice to hear from you. If somebody uh, did not get a name on this person, but they say, I never get tired of listening to and about the ageless wisdom. You're doing a great service in letting people know about it and about all the information and literature that's out there. Makes you realize how amazing existence is. Well, thank you. If it can do that, for you, then I'm really grateful about that. Um, and Patricia Vega says, sorry, I forgot to put my name on that. Okay, so <laughs> now we know. And uh, thank you, Patricia. Great to hear from you. Uh, Patricia was out here on Maui with her husband, Rich, uh, a couple of months ago, a few weeks ago, and we had the pleasure of seeing them. That was nice. Robert in Irvine says, aloha, Michael. Um you bring up how putting material gain above life is viewed as evil. It uh, reminds me of, some, of something you said many years ago on KLOS. It's always stuck with me uh, that the word evil is live backwards or live backwards. And when we're behaving in an evil way, we're moving backwards. Thanks for an excellent class and have a magical week. And uh, thank you, Robert. I don't remember saying that, but it sounds like something I might have said once. <laughs> Let me go to my uh, telephone page, and we should have uh, some callers here, including our ringer of the week. Let me get the page up here. Oh, yeah, look at all these folks now. And uh, where is my ringer of the week? Jenna, are you not here? I don't see any hands up. Got people in Reno, Beverly Hills, somebody in Tucson, uh, 
uh, somebody in Albuquerque. I know we have a couple of people in Albuquerque. And uh, here's an anonymous. I don't even know what city they're in. So my ringer of the week didn't make it, and I see no hands. So we'll check this again before we leave. Star two if you want to raise your hand. And in the interim, let's do our visualization exercise and uh, bring it all home here with a little practicing what we preach, huh? So if this is a good time for you, close your eyes, get nice and comfortable, and take a nice, slow, deep breath or two. Everybody has a different sense of how meditation contemplation, deep relaxation feels. For me, I just imagine myself balanced and centered rather than sitting rigid. I just balance with shoulders back, my head above my spine, and let myself sit relaxed and balanced. And then I imagine getting sort of melty, melting like a snowman in the springtime or like I'll often say a dish of butter on a warm day. And it's not that you melt into a pool, it's just that you soften, you know, like butter left out on the countertop. It looks the same, it's just a little softer. And Imagine feeling your body yielding to deep relaxation and becoming softer slowly toward the very center of your being imagine the skin around your body is yielding and becoming more relaxed and then the layers of tissue and muscle underneath that becoming more relaxed and gradually working toward the very core of your being the center of your skeleton is if the very marrow of your bones could feel ah, so safe and so relaxed. And this is the alpha brainwave level. Most of the time that we're in this safe and relaxed place, we're reading or watching TV, maybe listening to music, provided it's very relaxing. But all the programming in those cases, all of the input and stimulus comes from others. Even now, you can argue that I'm your input. But as I teach you each week various applications of meditation, I'm also encouraging you to use this state on your own, free from my guidance, much less the influence of mass media, to go to a place safe and relaxed where your emotional nature 
is calm and undisturbed and your mental nature becomes quiet and still. Feel in your body emotionally as if you are the surface of a small lake that is going from choppy and windswept to smooth as glass. And as you imagine feeling the surface of that small lake or pond becoming as smooth as glass, feel that tranquility in your body. Be as undisturbed emotionally as that lake. And mentally, I would like you to think of a single candle flame that burns boldly and brightly standing above the candle. But a flame that does not flicker or flutter in any way. A flame that burns brightly but is fixed and transfixed, moving not even in the slightest. So even is the burn, so focused, so still is that flame representing the mind. standing above the calm, mirror-like waters of the emotional nature. And in this place, you can basically do two things. You can watch your natural stream of thoughts or train of thoughts go by. And if stream of thoughts appeals to you, then imagine crawling up on the bank out of the water and sitting up on the bank of the stream, watching the stream of thoughts go by from this elevated point of view. And without being those thoughts or feeling carried or directed by those thoughts, you can practice feeling detached and even more aware of the nature of the thought. Detachment is not to become unaware, but even more aware of the thought, but aware that you are not the thought, you are the witness of the stream of thought. many of which right now are responses to what I'm saying. But even if I stop speaking for a few moments, watch the stream of thoughts continue for the next few moments. From the bank of the stream, climb up on the shore, get detached, look down on the thoughts from this elevated superior perspective Detached, but not dissociated. 
you're looking down on the thought stream that will continue until I speak again in a few moments. Watch your thoughts. And each time you find yourself becoming the thoughts once again, it's subtle, isn't it? You start thinking about thinking, about the thinking, about thinking, about thinking. (laughs) Every time that happens, take a breath, and as you exhale, detach, rise above it. Let go. And watch the thought drift by. Remind yourself you don't need to invest in believing this thought or not. Let the thought go by. You don't have to decide if this thought is right or wrong, good or bad. Many times in your life, you will have to do that. But right now, you need not. You can just let go of a need to make a decision, how you feel or what you think about a thought, which leads to more thoughts and more thoughts and more thoughts. Just let it go by. There it goes. Bye. See you. Downstream. And of course, blended in with these thoughts are little feelings and sets of feelings. And you can do the same thing. Let them float by. Watch them. Witness them. You don't have to be that feeling. You don't have to react to that feeling or set of feelings. You don't need to care about the feeling one way or another. You don't need to do anything except Watch those feelings, like the thoughts, drift on by. Breathe and relax. And continue for another minute or two to simply be the witness. Thank you. 
enjoy the wonderful feeling of detachment. As if you're watching a baseball game and you're enjoying the game and it matters not who wins or who's ahead or who's behind or what city these teams represent, you're just enjoying the game. Now I want you to reorient to the sound of my voice and prepare to return to the waking state. And inhaling one more time, take a full deep breath, hold as you peak, and as you exhale, ah, open your eyes, wide awake, rested and refreshed and back in the room, feeling really good. A little exercise in mindfulness. Going to let you go. Hope you'll join us every week. Uh, watch for the newsletter. It usually comes on Friday. And uh, also be sure and check out focusedpassion.com. An account at Focused Passion is free. Just leave your email address and uh, your first name. Your full name's even better, but just a first name if you wish, an email address, and choose a password and you'll have a free account, you'll be able to log in, and you'll have an automatic built-in player with a half a dozen different free programs, um, a bunch of articles, uh, all of these Mystery School webinars, all of it for free. And if you want to subscribe, you can do that later for 99 cents. So Focused Passion, remember the ED, that's the w's.focusedpassion.com and subscribe to the premium audio feed that Steve and I do. Personal empowerment audio programs to solve your problems and, and heal your heart. And uh, thanks to Focus Passion for sponsoring the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And we'll talk to you next week. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui. <laughs>